The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a space comedy about a human and an alien. I have not seen it. I have just read about it. So I'm not recommending you see it. I don't know whether it's a good movie to see or not. Maybe some of you have. But it's a comedy about a human and an alien who hitch a ride with a spacecraft just before Earth is destroyed. Along with other characters, they go on a quest to find answers to the mystery of life. The narrator says, Many millions of years ago, a race of hyper-intelligent, pan-dimensional beings got so fed up with the constant bickering about the meaning of life that they commissioned two of their brightest and best to design and build a stupendous supercomputer to calculate the answer to life, the universe, and everything. So a group of guards wearing gold plates lead two little girls dressed in white robes to this huge altar. The girls look up to the supercomputer, which looks like a contemplating human-like figure with this giant head, and it's called Deep Thought. And one of the girls asks, Oh, Deep Thought, we want you to tell us the answer. Deep Thought responds, The answer to what? The answer to life, the universe, everything. We'd really like an answer. Something simple. Hmm, replies deep thought. I'd have to think about that. Return to this place in exactly seven and a half million years. Seven and a half million years later, with a throng of hundreds and thousands of people gathered in front of deep thought, the two girls approach for their answer. One of them says, Deep Thought, do you have an answer for you? Yes, but you're not going to like it. It doesn't matter, we must know it. All right. The answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything is 42. The cheering crowd stops. (laughs) Disappointment written all over their faces. One man shouts, 42? Yes, replies the computer. I thought it over quite thoroughly. It's 42. It would have been simpler to have known what the actual question was. One of the girls says, but it was the question, the ultimate question of everything. That's not a question, chides deep thought. Only when you know the question will you know what the answer means. 42. What is the meaning of life? That's the question that the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes sets himself out to find. That is the quest in the book of Ecclesiastes. What is the meaning of life? And he will conclude, and you can't read Ecclesiastes apart from the conclusion, otherwise you get depressed. All right? He's going to conclude at the end of the book, we talked about it last week, he's going to conclude that the meaning of life is found in a right relationship with God. God, the creator of this universe, made us to know and to enjoy Him. So turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 this morning as we begin to work our way through this quest for the meaning of life. And in chapter 1, 
we learn that if the study of our natural world fails to lead us to God, our quest for meaning will end in emptiness. Chapter 1 introduces this whole quest for meaning by discussing the natural world in which we live. We live in a world today that worships science, puts scientists on the highest pedestal of knowledge, and yet so often scientists often end up sounding like deep thought in the movie in answering the question of the meaning of life. For that is not a question that they can answer. The simple truth is that science, apart from God, cannot answer that question at all. So principle number one, in chapter one, verses one through eight, our study of science cannot satisfy our need for significance. Look at verse one, Ecclesiastes chapter one. In the words of the preacher... The son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word is used 71 times in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, but 36 times in the book of Ecclesiastes alone, and in every chapter of Ecclesiastes except chapter 10. Literally, the word means wind or breath. So wind of winds, everything is wind. Breath of breath, everything is breath. It is used many times, however, in the Old Testament to refer to idols, those images that the pagans made to worship, those false gods which are called vanity, wind, since they have no permanence to them. Idols are simply empty gods who can do nothing for man. Now, Ecclesiastes uses the word in several ways, but the primary sense in the book of Ecclesiastes is that there is no fulfillment, no meaning in life. Life is empty. Life is vacuous. Life is transitory. Life is impermanent. Now, you have to understand that theme in the light of his final point, that meaning is found in a right relationship with God. So Ecclesiastes argues that life is meaningless apart from God. The quest for meaning in life will end in emptiness if it does not lead you to God. And he introduces that, and each, each segment in the book of Ecclesiastes is going to introduce another aspect to the quest for meaning in life, he introduces that quest with this issue of our natural, physical, material universe. And he says in the next verse, what advantage or benefit does man get in all his work under the sun? What's the profit? What do we get out of this? What is the significance to anything that we do on this earth? Is there any lasting value to to what we do here apart from God under the sun, and that's just an expression that means here in this world, in this life. And the answer is no, there is no value, lasting profit, benefit to our lives here on earth. Apart from God, there's no lasting value. It is all meaningless. We 
want to be significant. Everybody wants to be significant. But there is no significance to anything we do here on earth apart from God. Verse 4. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they will flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it, to talk about it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with the hearing. Generation after generation of humans have lived and died on this earth. But the earth continues on as if each generation never existed. From the human perspective, we study this world and we accomplish many things, but soon we die. And the earth continues after us as if we didn't live. No wonder humans have come to worship the earth the cosmos or the universe in which we live. I mean, primitive peoples long ago worshipped the sun or the moon as gods. Idol worship. That's why idols were called vanity. But folks, some environmentalists today are not much different when they speak of nature in almost religious terms. This Worldview is reflected in one very sad news story that appeared last year, early 2009. The story called attention to an increase in the number of suicides that occurred in U.S. national parks in 2008. There was a marked increase in suicides around the country occurring in national parks. The article cited several examples of people who had committed suicide that year in one of the national parks, including this one, a 65-year-old university biology professor who, quote, disappeared into Utah's Canyonlands National Park, telling relatives in a note he was returning body and soul to nature. Returning body and soul to nature. Now, as Christians, we certainly understand the concept of our bodies going back into this material world. I mean, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, right? Our bodies go back into this world, into this physical, material world. We understand that at death. And we certainly understand that we have an obligation to care for this creative work of God, this world in which we live. But this man thought of death as his way to return his soul to the earth. Did you catch that? His immaterial being to nature. This is idolatry. This is vanity. Vanity of vanities in the guise of naturalism or nature worship. On the other end of that spectrum, many scientists have come to view this cosmos as the everlasting mother of life. The sun rises, the sun sets and rises again, just as it always has. 
Uniformitarianism is the foundation of modern science. The universe operates on fixed laws that have always operated that way and are observable. Now, of course, some people might get picky and argue that it is not scientifically accurate to say that the sun rises and sets because we know that the earth revolves around the sun, right? But even scientists speak of enjoying a sunset. So the language of human observation is certainly legitimate here. The philosophical foundation of atheistic science, modern science today, is that the universe operates according to the fixed laws of nature which have remained the same since the beginning of time and are observable. And those patterns we can establish as scientific laws. So the wind blows south and north as it circles the earth. The science of meteorology is founded on the circulation of the atmosphere patterns that science can observe. Science, according to the Random House College Dictionary, is simply the systematic knowledge of the physical or material world. So verse 7 continues this systematic knowledge of this material world by saying that the rivers run into the sea, but the sea doesn't fill up with water because the rivers go back to the place where they began to start all over again. What a marvelous description of the science of hydrology. The hydrologic cycle is a well-established concept. There's a never-ending cycle of water in our world. Water falls to the earth as rain flows to the sea or to the lakes, the great bodies of, of water through the rivers, only to evaporate from those great bodies back into the sky and fall again as precipitation. The cycle is endless. It follows fixed patterns that scientists can study. We know more today than Solomon did in his day, certainly. And yet all of this knowledge does not bring any meaning to life. Life is even more meaningless the more we know. Notice what the preacher says as he concludes this little section in verse 8. All these things are wearisome, wearisome, round and round and on and on it goes. The earth continues. It was functioning before I entered this, this world. It is going to be functioning after I leave this world. On and on and round and round the cycles continue. And the cycles of life wear us out. It's wearisome, he says, frustrating. We make no discernible difference in the cosmos for having lived our lives on this earth. Man cannot even talk about it, he says, in a fulfilling way. The eye is not ever satisfied with seeing it all, even in its beauty, even its grandeur. The word refers to contentment or fulfillment. The ear is not filled up with the hearing of it all. Again, the word refers to finding contentment or significance in all this knowledge. The ear is not satisfied with the learning because it never seems to make life meaningful. Now, the preacher is not denying that knowledge has value or that education is important 
or that man never does anything creative or noteworthy, never invents anything new, that would be ridiculous. He's talking about the issue of finding any fulfillment in life. He's talking about finding the meaning for our souls in the study of our material world. So, once again, you have to read this paragraph in the light of the end of the book and realize that it is, that the, that, uh, it is the study of science apart from God, the study of this natural universe apart from God that ends up being futile and empty. The meaning of life will never be found in nature. It just won't be. The purpose of life will not be experienced in the cosmos alone. In his book, Reasonable Faith, Christian Truth and Apologetics, <laughs> the uh, DNA s- sculpture here made out of shopping carts. <laughs> Looking for truth and meaning. <laughs> In his book, Reasonable Faith, Christian Truth and Apologetics, William Lane Craig observes how difficult it is for an atheist to live with the logical conclusions of his or her beliefs. Unable to live in an impersonal universe in which everything is the product of blind chance, atheists sometimes begin to ascribe personality and motives to the physical processes themselves. For example, the brilliant Russian physicists Zeldovich and Novikov, in contemplating the properties of the universe, ask, why did nature choose to, cre- choose to create this sort of universe instead of another universe? Why did nature choose all right? Nature has obviously become a sort of God substitute, filling the role and function of God. Francis Crick, halfway through his book, The Origin of the Genetic Code, begins to spell nature with a capital N. And elsewhere speaks of natural selection, evolutionary natural selection, as being clever and as thinking what to do. Sir Fred Hoyle, the English astronomer, attributes to the universe itself the qualities of God. For Carl Sagan, perhaps one of the most famous atheist scientists, and his cosmos, you know, always continuing, right? Cosmos. He always spelled cosmos with a capital C. It's a God substitute. It's all it is. The earth continues. What did Ecclesiastes say? On and on and on it goes. Cosmos. Worship the cosmos. Though these men profess, he writes, not to believe in God, they smuggle in a God substitute through the back door because they cannot bear to live in a universe in which everything is the chance result of impersonal forces. The God substitutes are everywhere. The idols in the Old Testament were vanities, wind, breath. Richard Melville Hall, known as Moby, well-known rock singer, is even more controversial for his faith. 
Moby, in, a, in an interview with Darren Philbert, Phil, Philip, excuse me, describes the universal need for God. He says, one of my favorite quotes is, those who are sick are in need of a doctor, and the sad thing is we are all sick. It's part and parcel of the human condition. It's especially part and parcel of living in the United States in the 21st century. We're all sick. We're all deeply unhappy, disconnected, unwell people. We need each other and we need God. And if God made the universe, and if God made us, and if God made the world, it just makes sense to invite God into our lives and ask Him, You made me. What should I be doing? That's the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. You made me, God. What am I supposed to be doing? What should I be doing? How can I please you, God? You're my creator. How can I enjoy you in this life? How can I please you? That's the conclusion that Ecclesiastes and the preacher will come to. It won't be found in nature and the cosmos. The answer of those who emphasize the nature, that nature and cosmos as the solution to everything will end up with something about as meaningful as 42 to the answer of life. All right, second principle this morning. Newness is repackaged oldness, which leads to emptiness. Look at verse 9. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, See, this, it is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. All right, mankind has always worshipped at the feet of newness. Each generation... Every generation thinks that their discoveries and their inventions are the newest and the greatest discoveries of life. That's human nature. Human pride in the glory of our accomplishments, the expansion of our knowledge has never been higher than it is today. With all of our incredible accomplishments in this world, iPads, (laughs) thank you very much, enjoying it, enjoying your gift to me, iPhones, laptops, they carry us around the world in nanoseconds, but do they tell us the meaning of life? I asked my, no I didn't actually, but (laughs) tell me the meaning of life, oh glorious iPad, Eh, blank, you know. I didn't actually do that, but just thought of it now. But you can go to the top of Mount Everest. You know, I read this week that they've got cell phone coverage on the top of Mount Everest now. They've established a cell phone tower so that the climbers can climb their, their loved ones from the top of Mount Everest. Do you think they find meaning in life that way? We can peer deeper into space than man has ever seen before. Does that knowledge lead to an understanding of our true purpose in life? If we could cure cancer tomorrow, 
and eliminate it from this earth, would we know the meaning of life? No. In fact, the preacher in these verses goes one step farther and he says, there is nothing new under the sun. Whatever has been is what will be too. Whatever has been done will be done in the future. Then he asks, is there anything that we can claim is new, which is really new? Is there any new thing that has not been done long ago? Is there anything you can point to and say, see, this is new? And he says, no. There's nothing new under the sun. Now, think about that for a minute. He doesn't mean that new discoveries are not made. He doesn't mean that new inventions aren't created or new information. He's not denying the reality of new information and new inventions. That, that would make no sense whatsoever. We are talking about newness in terms of the meaning of life. Does it bring you the meaning of life? So, our telescopes, which the preacher did not have, our telescopes can peer deeper into the universe than man has ever seen. And we can know more about our expanding universe than man has ever known. And it's incredible. But in terms of the meaning of life, it has all been done before. The primitive man who peered with his naked eye skyward at night and looked at the expanse of the heavens asked the very same questions and got the same answers that the scientist with the greatest telescope available today will end up asking. Who are we? Why are we here? What is man? Hasn't changed. In that sense, there's nothing new under the sun. The reason we think that we have the newest and greatest knowledge is that we have no remembrance, he says, of the former things. Now, the New American Standard translates it better, I think, than the NIV, which talks about we've forgotten about the people who lived before. He's not talking about the people who lived before. He's talking about the things that people learned in the past. Because we don't remember those things that the ancients knew We think it is all new and wonderful when it is really oldness repackaged to look new. In 1963, the detection of cosmic microwave background noise in the universe was one of, and is considered one of the greatest discoveries of the 20th century because it is strong evidence that the universe had a definite beginning. Before this time, of course, many philosophers, scientists, including all the way back to Aristotle, believed the universe was eternal and always existed. The background noise of the universe is evidence of a beginning and is one of the fundamental proofs of what is popularly known as the Big Bang Theory for the origin of this universe. That discovery in 63 of the cosmic microwave background noise. Arno Penzias won a Nobel Prize for his co-discovery of that background noise in the universe. 
And he says, The creation of the universe is supported by all the observable data astronomy has produced so far. As a result, the people who reject the data can arguably be described as having a religious belief. Penzias thinks the most logical explanation of the universal background noise is a moment of discrete creation from nothing and says, the best data we have are exactly what I would have predicted had I, not, had I had nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, or the Bible as a whole. I could have predicted that from what was known back in the day of Moses, he says. The Big Bang theory of the origin of the universe is merely, really, old knowledge repackaged as new. Apart from God as creator, of course. I can believe in the Big Bang. I just believe that God made the Big Bang. Moses believed in the Big Bang. He just believed God made the Big Bang. So the difference is that we believe that God produced the Big Bang and something came into existence out of nothing. And the microwave background noise that we can detect is the fingerprint of God on his creation. So the preacher says there is nothing new here. They have simply forgotten to read Moses. They don't remember what we learned long ago about the origin of the universe. Because they don't want to, really, right? Somebody will come along with something new, which is just a repackaging of the old with new words and new information. Yet all of this newness just leads to emptiness without God. I mean, we have discovered more new information in the last 100 years than ever before. But mankind is no closer to understanding the meaning of life than Moses in Genesis 1. And that's why any understanding of the meaning of life has to start with Genesis chapter 1. That's where the meaning of life begins and God as creator. No wonder people still believe in a creator, no matter what everybody tries to tell them differently. A Gallup poll released on March 8, 2005, just a few years ago, found that 81% of teenagers believe that God was involved in creating humankind. 81% of Teenagers in 2005 believe that God was involved in creating mankind. Wait a minute. These are the same teens who have been taught throughout their educational years that creationism is wrong. Right? Our, our educational powers don't want creationism taught in the public schools. But 81% of teens believe that God created us. Why? Why? Because the alternative provides no meaning to life. And that's why creationism is still alive and well. Because the only answer to the meaning of life begins 
with a creator God that, that provides purpose to life. Professor and journalist Terry Mattingly writes about Philip Johnson. Philip Johnson has written, he's a scientist, has written a lot of books on science and the Bible, Christianity, and goes around the country and has done a lot of debates on university campuses and that sort of thing. And in his talks, Philip Johnson quotes the Gospel of John, and he'll say, in the Gospel of John it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Right? And after reading that, Philip Johnson will ask his audience on the campus, Is that true or false? Then he turns that passage inside out and creates a credo for use in sanctuaries aligned with the National Center for Science Education. And he says, okay, let's say it this way. And it sounds like this. In the beginning were the particles, and the particles were somehow... In the beginning were the particles, and the particles somehow became complex living stuff, and the stuff imagined God. And then he says, is that true or not? Which of those statements is true? And Philip Johnson argues that today's debates over science, creation, morality are literally clashes between people who believe, on the one hand, that there is a scientific that there is scientific evidence that God created man, and those who believe there is scientific evidence that man created God. And that's what it boils down to. And he says, Philip Johnson, if there is no creator who has purpose for your life, then there is no such thing as sin. Sin would mean that you are in a wrong relationship to your creator. Well, you can't be in a wrong relationship with the particles. They don't care. So you don't need a savior to save you from the consequences of your wrong relationship with the particles. When you give away creation, you have given away everything, Philip Johnson says. And he's right. When you give away creation, Genesis 1, you have given away any hope of meaning in life. Because you no longer have a creator God. And that's why Ecclesiastes starts with creation. The meaning of life begins with faith in a creator. If God did not create this universe, there is no meaning to life. None. Once we establish that reality, we can then look to this God for the answers to our questions. And that's why he starts there. Knowing God is the only way to find fulfillment in life. Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan preacher back in the 1700s, wrote, The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beings, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. We were made to know God. That is built into us. 
and it is the only way we will have satisfaction. And there is a fantastic turkey right outside the window. <laughs> he came for church. Open the door. Oh, there's two of them. No, I don't open the door. All right, I'm back up here. Come on back. That was totally, totally very bad preaching right there because, you, you, you know, you just all went off in that direction. What's that? Part of God's great creation right out there, right. They're kind of dumb, though. So. <laughs> All right. We were made to know God. God created this universe and us so we could know and enjoy him. And you won't find meaning anywhere else. Holly Ordway was a highly educated atheist who thought Christianity was both a historical curiosity and a blemish on modern civilization. To her, the Bible was a collection of myths and folk tales. She mocked Christians. She belittled their faith, intelligence, and character. She wrote, I had built myself a fortress of atheism secure against any attack by irrational faith, and I lived in it alone. Though she wasn't looking for God, she began to be drawn to matters of faith. And one reason for interest, she explains, is that her, quote, naturalistic worldview was inadequate to explain the nature of reality in a coherent way. Sounds like Ecclesiastes 1. She realized it could not explain the origin of the universe, nor could it explain morality. So after a series of conversations with a mentor and some reading in Christian writings, Ordway went from denying God's existence to committing herself to Jesus Christ as her personal Savior. And she embraced, she said, St. Paul's forthright declaration that Christianity is based on the historical witnessed events of Christ's death and resurrection and that theology and philosophy offer real answers. Atheism does not. Start with God as creator in your quest for meaning in life. Will you trust God for your answers in life? Or not? Father, teach us to look to you. Teach us to come to you Teach us to know you through Jesus Christ, your Son, and to find our purpose and meaning in life in pleasing and honoring you. In Jesus' name, amen.